We are on part two of the day of evil to days of goodness, um, going through the book of Esther. Uh, obviously, next week we have to take a break because my dad is doing both services, but I'll be back Saturday night, what is it, 13 days from now, or 14 days from now, on two Saturday nights with the final part of Esther. Uh, we get about halfway through chapter five today. And just to review some things for some of you that may have not heard this, um, there are types and shadows in the Bible, things hidden in the Old Testament that are revealed in the New. Uh, Esther herself is a type of the church, is a picture of the church. In the New Testament, the church is all, all, often pictured as a female or a virgin. Esther is a type of the church. You can, you can take Esther in this story and just put yourself there. Darius is the king of Persia at the time, which is modern day Iran. All right. Uh, the Persian empire was probably the second or third most um, expansive empire to have ever existed. Um, when you see the name Assyrius or Octasis in, in, in Esther, it is the king. And that's just a title for him. That is not his name. It would be uh, the same as if it was the Pharaoh of Egypt. They call him Assyrius. Mordecai is Esther's older cousin who adopted her after the death of her parents. These are some things that we covered last week. Um, the Jews at the time had been taken out of Israel. They were conquered by Persia um, under Nebuchadnezzar, two kings earlier than Darius, dragged across the Middle East and were mixed into the Persian society. And this is where we pick up in the book of Esther. Uh, the king had a banquet, all his princes uh, you know, he brings everyone in, like, like a 148-day banquet, and uh, he had a queen. I believe she was an Indian queen. Her name was Vashti, V-A-S-T-I, V-A-S-H-T-I, which is, I believe it, she, was an, she was a Miss India. She was an Indian uh, from the, the country of India because of her name, very common Indian name. Uh, he summoned her to the banquet. She refused to come. She was deposed as the queen, all right, for, it was, for, that, was a, for that major slight to the king. And so what they did was they, they went all over the empire. They, they pulled up probably the 10 to 50,000 of, of 16 to 20-year-old women who were the most beautiful women. And basically, they had a giant beauty pageant, and whoever he picked was going to become the queen of an empire. These women spent 12 months being prepared just to face him. Um, and so just a little bit more review. Uh, Esther 2, 16 and 17, Esther was taken into King Darius. I'll just say that because that's his name, into his royal palace in the 10th month, the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the maidens, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And it goes into Esther 2.21, in those days while Mordecai sat at the king's gate. All right, two eunuchs, Big Than, Teresh, of those who guarded the door, they were two soldiers, probably elite soldiers, if they were at the palace, uh, were, were angry. Basically, if you study it out, uh, hatched an assassination attempt against King Darius. Mordecai heard this being seated 
at the king's gate. Why would it say he's seated? Um, and it was investigated. He told Esther. Esther told the king. Um, I'm just paraphrasing Esther 2, 21 through 23. Uh, the, the plot was um, revealed, and the two men were hanged. And we have the entrance into the story of the villain, the bad guy, Haman. Um, if you Google Haman in the Hebrew, it means rager or angry man. Haman was a direct descendant from the Am- Amalekites, a direct descendant of the Amalekite king named Agag, who, whom Saul uh, spared. You remember that cost Saul his crown when he spared that king. And uh, he was a direct descendant from, from that, that guy. Last we talked about how Mordecai was seated at the gate. And it, it being that in the New Testament, like a shadow of, a shadow of that, or that's a type of the New Testament, understanding on a daily basis you're operating or your spirit man is operating from a place of joint seating with Christ. We're talking about types and shadows. This is how you read the Old Testament And we went into detail on this last week. You have Mordecai being seated at the gate, is able to pick up a conversation between the two eunuchs and uh, their evil plans, expose them. And I I took that into Ephesians 2, 6, being seated at the gate. You have, uh, he was raped, we were raised up together with him, made us to sit down together. Just think about that. He views you as you were crucified, buried, and raised. It's as if you were crucified yourself. It's as as if you get credit as if you were crucified yourself. We're crucified with Christ. It's not I that lives, but Christ in me, right? How many times does it say in the New Testament, he views you as if you were crucified, buried, and raised as if you did it yourself because he took your place. And you have to remember that, and it doesn't just stop there. He gives us, made us sit down together, giving us joint seated seating with him. But do you approach life as if you're seated with him in the heavenly sphere by virtue of our being just having Jesus in our hearts? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You've got a temple, right? Mordecai sat at the, king, at, at the king's gate. Are you seated with him? This little shadow of Mordecai being seated and picking up that information tells us that because of his position, he overhears the conversation of these two guys. That's a shadow of whenever you're seated with Christ, aware of it on a daily basis. We talked about this in detail last week. Your discernment will be strengthened That's a picture of your discernment being strengthened. You have Mordecai being at the right place at the right time with strong, acute discernment. And you're talking about seated. You know, why does it have to say he was seated? He was always seated. Always seated. Why does it it say that? And Philippians 4, 6, and 7, rest has to do with authority. If we look in the Amplified, it says, do not fret or have anxiety about anything. Well, when's that? In every circumstance and in everything by prayer and petition. What's those? That's definite request. And I take that as not general, right? Sometimes I take it overboard. Um, 
and get too, I probably too detailed, but in every circumstance, good or bad, but when you pray, it's talking about prayer. When you pray, it says you're going to be better off if you do it not from a position of anxiety. I understand there are times where you have to cry out for God in your panic, and he will be there in his mercy. The other thing I wanted to say is you don't ever have to be guilty about asking God for too much. All right? And if you ever are made to feel guilty that you're asking him for too much, uh, you being evil, love to give good gifts to your children. How much more do I, your father in heaven, love to give good gifts to you? He's saying he loves to. And we're going to cover that later. But notice, and if you pray and make petition with thanksgiving, continue to make your wants known to him. What's your want? Do you continue in every circumstance to make your wants known? Right? And so... At that point, what happens at that point? Next verse. And the peace of God shall be yours. What's that? You won't fear anything and you'll be content in whatever's going on. COVID, riots, looting. You can be content in your earthly lot, whatever sort that is. So he tells Esther. Esther tells the king the plot and the plot gets foiled and then we find Haman getting a promotion out of all this. And notice Esther 3, 1 and 2. After these things, King Darius promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed to him and did reverence to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. So this was a command by the king. But Mordecai did not bow down. They only bowed, the Jews at that time only bowed to God. He did not bow down. Or do him reverence. You know, so, so Mordecai did not get credit for exposing this assassination attempt at the time. Notice he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. All right. And you'll see what happens for him later. Esther 3, 3 through 6, when the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? In other words, why aren't you bowing to this guy? They were trying to set him up. Verse 4, Esther 3, 3 through 6, now when they spoke to him, day after day they approached him. And he didn't pay attention to him. They told Haman to see whether Mordecai's conduct would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down to him or do reverence for him, he was very angry. But he scorned laying hands on just Mordecai, verse 6. So he knew Mordecai's nationality. He knew the situation of the Jews. He sought to destroy the whole Jewish nation at that point. You have the first attempt to exterminate the Jewish nation right here. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Darius. So... You have in Esther 3, 8 through 10, Haman going to the king. And he talks, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces. Their laws are different from every other people. Neither do they keep your laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to tolerate them. 
if it pleases the king, he says, I'm going to give you millions of dollars into your treasury if you kill him. You kill every single one of them, you'll make a lot of money, of my own personal money. And so in verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand, which, with which to seal his letters by the king's authority, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, the Jew's enemy. So Haman has that ring. He has the authority. All right? In verse 10, it talks about a signet ring, which gets pressed into a clay tablet and then seals whatever decree or command. So whatever that signet ring seals in the king's name is unchangeable. In this story, you have two decrees from the king that were impressed with the king's signet ring. And this is one of them. And this decree was issued on the 13th day of the month. And it was decreed that the Jews would die on the 13th day of the month. And so one place in the New Testament you find a ring, and it is a signet ring. If you study it out, a ring of authority is in Luke 15. You may have heard this. I think I talked about this last spring, spring before last. And the prodigal son, you know, he gets his, he gets his inheritance. You know, both sons got their inheritance. Both sons were basically millionaires. It says both sons receive their inheritance. And so what happens is he goes off, takes his millions of dollars, blows it on partying, you know, everything that, that you could possibly do back then. And so then he, he's, he's in poverty, sleeping with the pigs. And then he came to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father have enough food and even food to spare? And I'm perishing, dying here of hunger. See, he didn't, he didn't come back because he missed his father. So people, people missed this. He had a repentant heart. No, he didn't. He was hungry. He was starving. He didn't miss his father. He didn't want a close relationship with his father. He would have said that. He says it right here. He, at least his servants get enough to eat. So he came back because he was starving. Let's go to verse 18. And then he, ha- and then he comes up with his, his, you could call it his repentant speech, right? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Next verse. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's practicing the speech. In verse 20, he got up, came to his own father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So that means he was looking for him and was moved with pity and tenderness for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him fervently. For, you know, I've always pictured a house on a hill. But this was actually the way these things were set up is, is they, were, they were towns and, and the richest guy in the town would live at the end of the town, right? He had to sprint through the town. Um, and that word is sprint. That word ran. He sprints, falls on his neck, kisses him fervently. Verse 21, the son said, he starts his little speech. Should have just said, if he, he could have just told the truth and said, I'm starving. I mean, can I have something right now? I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And then he, the father doesn't even acknowledge it, doesn't say anything, doesn't say, I heard you. Matter of fact, he interrupts him in the middle of his speech of repentance, right? Repentance is a change of mind. He changed his mind and came home. He changed his mind from where he was at and came home. His mind adjusted. I'm leaving this and I'm going there. That was enough for the father. The father said to the bond servants, bring quickly the best robe. It's a robe of honor. Put it on him and give him a ring for his hand. That was a signet ring, a ring of authority, a credit card that he could take and spend just pictures and types here. What was the first decree or law that carries the king's authority? The king in Esther is a type or a picture of God because of his authority, which was working for your death and mine. What's the first decree of God that was working for your death or mine? Let's just, I won't even say it. Let's just go to the scripture, the New Testament type of this first decree, all right, that worked, that had to be reversed. If it wasn't reversed, we'd be in trouble. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 and 9. For it is he who has qualified us, making us to be fit and worthy and sufficient as ministers and dispensers of a new covenant. A new covenant. Not ministers of the letter, of a legally written code, but of the spirit. For the code of the law kills. Talking about the Ten Commandments. The code of the law kills, but the Holy Spirit makes alive. Now, if the dispensation of death, people say, oh, Jim, when he's talking about the law in the New Testament, he's talking about the rituals and the animal sacrifices and, and how you eat. Uh, no, it's pretty clear here. Now, if the dispensation of death engraved in letters on stone. That what it was, what's that in the Greek? The ministration of the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, the 622 laws that goes with it, was inaugurated with such glory and splendor that the Israelites were not able to look steadily at the face of Moses because of its brilliance that was to fade and pass away. Well, Moses came down that mountain with the Ten Commandments, and do you remember what happened? When the law was issued, 3,000 people died that very day. He might have come down in, in God's glory, but they couldn't face it. They couldn't look at it. They were afraid of it. They were dancing around a golden calf in the middle of all types of orgy, and it killed 3,000 of them when the law was given. When the law was given the dispensation of death. Why should not the dispensation of the spirit, verse eight, spiritual ministry whose task it is to cause men to obtain and be governed by the Holy Spirit be attended with much greater and more splendid glory. When the spirit came in acts like a rushing mighty wind, you know, you, you know how people say, you can quench the Holy Spirit Will you do one thing? The spirit, spirit's gone. He's out of the. He's, he's out of the. We did, we did this. We did the wrong song, and the spirit left. You have the spirit in a rush here, like a rushing mighty wind. What happened that day? Three thousand people were saved when the spirit came. When the ministry of the spirit came. 
For it goes on to say, for in verse 9, for if the service that condemns, in the King James, it says the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of doom, it is called. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. See, Paul said in Romans 7, oh, I was the best of all Pharisees. I was, I was, I was top among, I was the best. But you know what? I coveted. I kept all the other commandments and I coveted, thou shalt not covet. So it was like I really did commit adultery. I really did steal. I really did dishonor my parents because you break one, you break them all. You know what coveting is? Um, really wanting to possess something, yearning to possess something. Have you ever yearned to possess something? Just yearned for it? Yearned for a boat, a car, a house? When I was in high school, I yearned to, to be an incredible basketball player, yearned for it. Oh, that sounds, it's not a bad thing. I worked for it. I worked hard for it every day, but I yearned, I coveted it. And if I wasn't good enough, it bothered me, right? Paul said that he, he broke, he, he coveted. Not only broke the 10 commandments, but broke the 622 laws. I believe a lot of Christians, the reason they're so depressed and oppressed and have so many problems is because they're operating under the curse of the law because they're so self-occupied thinking, if I do enough, I will get enough, where Jesus already gave it to you. And so, and that's, why is this guy writing this here? Why is the Holy Spirit writing this about the Old Testament? And so, all through this series, we're applying New Testament truths that are hidden in the Old Testament. They're called shadows and types. In this story, it's really a picture of how God is able to not just reverse King Darius's decrees, but applied to the New Testament. It's a picture how he was able to reverse us from a covenant of death into a covenant of a relationship of life with him. Is the law perfect? Absolutely. Am I bashing on the law? No, I'm not. Are they bashing on the law in Galatians, in Hebrews, in Corinthians, where they write all these things? Um, no, they're not. They're saying it, the standard is so high, you can never get there. You will always be cursed, you know? And even the Israelites knew that if they just had an animal sacrifice once a year that went through, they were covered for a year. We don't even know that. We had a sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God, of the son of God himself. We don't even think we're covered for a day. The Israelites knew they were covered for a year just based on an animal. Hebrews 8, 6, and 7, just to kind of hammer this in, but now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry. But how much also is, is he the mediator of a better covenant with better promises? Next verse. But if that first covenant had been faultless, there's no reason for a second. What did he just call the first covenant? It wasn't faultless. That means it had fault. I'm, we're just reading the Bible. You can get as offended as you want. For some reason, the Holy Spirit thought that needed to be written in the New Testament about your covenant. And let's just look at the Amplified in verse 7, Hebrews 8, 7. I love this word. For if that first covenant had been without defect, that means it was defective. And if you're going to, you, you, you know, the whole book of Galatians is Christians operating 
under that covenant, the defective one, and paying the price. Not understanding the difference between law and grace. We're talking about how God will turn your day of mourning or darkness into good days. There's another decree later in the book of Esther stamped by the king's signet ring and it's how God turns this whole thing around. Esther 3.12, excuse me, the king's secretaries were called in on the 13th day of the first month and all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's chief rulers and to the governors who were all over all the provinces and to the princes of each people, to every province in its own script, to each people in their own language. See, the Persians, when they took over a country, they let them continue to worship their gods. That's why the Jews were still worshiping in the Persian capital. In in a lot of ways, um, even though they were ruled by a king, they were much more democratic than the Roman, Roman, um, you know, that crazy empire, all right? This, I mean, both of these are crazy empires, but um, so what happens is you think about that, that takes time. This, this huge amount of land, there aren't cars, there aren't planes, there aren't fax machines, there aren't computers. So messengers have to go out. Esther 3.13, the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to cause, to perish all Jews, both young, old, little children, and women, And one day, what if something like that was issued today? I would say that was a darker day. Even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of our door, and take the spoiled, take everything they own. Steal and kill, to kill, destroy, and to kill. John 10, 10. The The thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. These are the words of Jesus. I came. Remember, these are Roman times. They were crucifying criminals, right? They weren't throwing them in jails. They were crucifying criminals. I came that they might have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. Even with emperors like Nero, guys ruling like that, Jesus said, you can have life till it overflows. So what are we missing if, we, if we're not experiencing overflowing life? Esther 3, 14 and 15. A copy of the writing was to be published and given out as a decree in every province to all the peoples to be ready for that day. So Esther, the special messengers went out, verse 15, in haste, and the decree was given out in Shushan, the capital, and the king and Haman sat down, and I guess they had a few drinks, But the city of Shushan was perplexed at the strange and alarming decree. Esther 4.1, now when Mordecai learned all that was done, he rent his clothes, put on a sackcloth with ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried aloud with a bitter cry. Esther 4.3, and in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Verse three, verse eight, four, eight. Mordecai gave him a copy of the decree and he gives it to a messenger to take to Esther. Esther sends through back to the messenger whose name was Hatak, 
she sends a messenger back because Mordecai's like, you have to do something now. You have to go into the king and plead for our people now. You are the only one in position to do this. Esther speaks back. Who was the messenger Mordecai sent to her? She speaks back to Hatak and Esther 4.11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any person, be it man or woman, shall go into the inner court to the king, inner court now, not the outer court, without being called shall be put to death. There is but one law for him, except to him that the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come to the king for these 30 days. It was a known law that even the queen just can't show up in his inner chamber. He has to call for her. If she breaks the law, she's put to death. So it all falls on this 17-year-old girl. Esther 4, 13 and 14. He told them, okay, this is what you say back to her. If you, look at 14, for if you keep silent, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance shall arise for the Jews from somewhere else, living word. It'll go to some other church. I just say this carefully. Do you really think the church is ever gonna align politically? I'm talking about unite. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ worldwide. Because you know in John 17, for the glory of God to come when Jesus is praying for the church, it has to unite. It has to unite. And I'm not saying don't pray for leaders and pray for our government and pray for this and pray for that. But I think the, 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 the key to getting out of this is the church uniting. And we're gonna get to that at the end regardless of views. And so he says, he says, and who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this and for this very occasion. I'm not talking about speaking out. I'm talking about praying. I'm talking about praying for such a time as this. For if you keep silent at this time, God knew we would be going through this in this country right now. He knew we would all be born into this time. So Esther instructs Mordecai to gather all the Jews together. Esther 4.16. Go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. And neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I also and my maids will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Esther is a type of the church. The church is often depicted in the New Testament as a woman with authority. And this is a type of what we're about to read in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 24. Come forward, draw near with true and honest and sincere hearts unqualified assurance. You don't have to be a qualified. You're better off thinking if you're not qualified to draw near to God. You're only qualified through what Jesus did on the cross, not qualified through your actions. 
because you're all sinning every day. Do you worry? Do you fear? Do you speed? Speeding's a sin. Do you do anything out of faith? Anything not done in faith, it says in Romans, is a sin. That means doubt is a sin. Unbelief is a sin. You're sinning every day. You have to have his grace. And you have to receive it on a regular basis. That's why it says unqualified assurance. You're assured, regardless if you're qualified or not, an absolute conviction engendered by faith, having our hearts sprinkled and purified from a guilty, evil conscience. Why is the Bible calling that word guilty in the Greek means evil? Why does it call a guilty conscience an evil conscience? Because if you're guilty for something you've done, then you're trampling on the blood of Jesus because you don't think what he did is enough to cover your sin. That's it. It says it. If you're guilty for something that you've done in the past, then you do not have a revelation of what he really died for you, what he really gave for you. That's why it calls a, a guilty conscience an evil conscience. I pray that we would have a and everyone online would have a revelation of what we're supposed to have. That's what the Bible calls an inherit. What's your inheritance is? Then if you're, think about this. If you're guilty, then you're not believing that what Jesus, that he did enough for you. He needs to die again. It actually says that in Hebrew. Should we ask him to die again? Does he need to go to the cross again? And our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 23. It says, let us hold fast to our profession of faith without wavering. How do you do that? In context, two verses later, Hebrews 10, 25. Not forsaking or neglecting to assemble together as believers. They didn't have computers. I don't want to hurt our online audience and there's no condemnation. But this is talking about Coming to church together. Okay? Not neglecting that. Why is that? Is that just to get us all in here so it looks good? There's power in this. People do not understand the power that is in this. Okay? I, I had, I had a, a few years ago a friend of mine that works in the ministry. His younger brother was 22 and his he drank so much alcohol. I'm talking 12 to 20 beers a day probably. This, this kid did. This is about 10 years ago. And, and he said, can you help my brother? And he, was, he was addicted to it. Like when he got off of it, his body reacted. He was that. If you've if you ever been addicted to anything, I mean, I mean, I drank a lot of alcohol in my time. And I was never physically addicted. You know what I mean? like visions and seeing things and the shakes and sick when I didn't have it. I was, I've been addicted to other things. And so to, for a 22-year-old kid to get to that point, and I said, you know what? I, I just said, I'll meet, I'll meet with him for 10 minutes. And then we, we and, and this is what I said. I said, if you go for two months, if you go to three services a week, okay, you just show up and do your best. Go to three services a week for two months, 24 services, I'll meet with you. I'll meet with you. You know what? He went to those 24 services. At that time, he went to the fifth service, and he went to Wednesday night. 
Fifth service was on Friday night, so he went to Wednesday night, and then he went to one weekend service. He went to 24 services in two months, has not touched a drink since. Never, never went to treatment, and I'm not down in treatment. Never went to AA, and I'm not down in AA. Been to all that. Had done four treatments. None of them worked for me. And so what I'm saying is people, even if you're just sitting here, you know, half of us there, What's that guy over there looking at? You know, I'm just saying, you don't understand the power that's being drawn into your own. See, see, people think, oh, this holds back evil in the world. It absolutely does. That's when the church goes is when evil really falls, right? But, but, but what you don't understand is what it does for you. I had someone meet me out in the parking lot at my car, just demanding that I counsel them on the spot. And I said, I, I just, I didn't react well. I just said, you think I got five minutes of golden words for you that are gonna change your life? I said, I, I said here, here they are. Go to two months of church every time the doors open. Then I'll talk to you. And he just shook his head. And that's the way people think of it. Why would the Bible say, you want to hold fast to your profession or faith and not waver? Well, don't forsake or neglect the assembly together. Please keep tuning in online. Dad will be back next week. There's no condemnation. I'm not condemning you. Thank you for tuning in. But there is power right here in churches across the world. Uh, Esther... Esther 5.1, it came to pass on the third day, always pay attention to numbers in the Bible, that Esther put on her royal apparel, stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. So we've got the third day she decides to approach. Pay attention to numbers. I'm going to convince you this is a type or a picture of the rapture. God made everything in six days. God made man on the sixth day. He rested on the seventh day. The Bible says a thousand years for the Lord is like one day. You know, I was putting together this sermon. If the Lord himself said a thousand years for him is like one day, and he said he made the earth in seven days, no, 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 we won't even go there. Just think about that. Meditate on that this 4th of July weekend, okay? Think about that. Did it take him that long to really do it? He says it's 1,000 years for the Lord is like one day. I'm not saying it took him that. I'm just saying it's something to think about. I'm not, listen, we know Jesus died 2,000 years ago. So as far as God is concerned, only two days have passed. Hosea 6, 2, and 3 in the Amplified, after two days, after two days, he will quicken us and give us life on the third day. He will raise us up that we may live before him. Verse three, yes, let us know, recognize, be acquainted with and understand him. Let us be zealous to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared and certain as the dawn. He will come to us as the heavy rain, as the latter rain that waters the earth. Just one of the many Old Testament prophecies of the rapture, studying out this prophecy, looking at what a number of scholars believe, after 2,000 years, God is coming in that third year. We're in 2020. 
This is the third day. This is early in the third day. The resurrection of Jesus was early in the third day. We're early morning third day Christians. 2020 is early third day. On the third day, he's going to raise us up. This is a picture of the rapture. But you could say, oh, the third day is a thousand years. I don't know. But if you study when Israel becomes a nation in 1948, it says it is very clear in numerous places that that generation will not pass away before he comes back for the rapture. That generation, the 48, that generation will not pass away before he returns. Did a, a seven-week series on this. You, you can't know the day, but I'll bet, I'll bet, we, we, can, we can bet, I'll bet, I'll bet you my mobile home in heaven, okay? <laughs> you can bet me your mansion. I'll bet you my double wide, right? I'll bet you that, that that will be in September, which is something called the Feast of Trumpets. You should get that, you should get that series, all right, that I did on the end times, okay? Notice, and I'm not saying this September, okay? Notice in Esther 5.1, on the third day, you have a type of the church in Esther walking into the king's palace, who is a picture of God and looking him in the eye. On the third day, Esther 5, 2, and 3, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. He held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king said to her, what will you have, Queen Esther? What is your request? I'll offer you half the kingdom. The scepter is a shadow of Hebrews 1.8. But unto the son, he said, thy throne, O God. We're talking about kings and queens and thrones, right? Is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. When you see that word righteousness in the New Testament, it means the ability to stand before God without any guilt or inferiority. No matter what you've done, you can come to him and you can get your prayers answered if you're aware of New Testament righteousness and you don't think it's Old Testament righteousness, which is how good you are. Another definition of New Testament righteousness is cleared from all guilt. Do you approach God as if you've been cleared from all guilt? As if you have got a clean slate right now? So this is a type or a picture of the king holding out that scepter, that scepter, it was just called the scepter of righteousness, the New Testament gift of righteousness, and she touched it. You've got to touch it every day. It's very clear, Romans 5, 17. Those, those, just talking to you now, who receive an abundance of overflowing grace, so you can get a little grace, or you can get overflowing grace. What is that? Unmerited favor. Favor you didn't work for. Favor you don't deserve. Those that receive that and the free scepter of righteousness, the free gift of righteousness are the Christians that reign as kings and queens in life, not the Christians that sin the least. Because we're always sinning and there's no sin scale. I mean, every week I I think about, you know what I thought about all week? This Sunday, all week, I, I, I wanted to possess I actually yearned for a extra large Godfather's taco pizza. And did I yearn? Yes, I yearned. I coveted all week. And technically that's a sin. If I spent how much time thinking about that? 
you watch four hours of Netflix a week and do two hours of Bible, biblically, that's an idol. But people see this, 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 those that receive overflowing grace, favor they don't deserve in the free gift of righteousness. What is that? That's knowing that he views you as perfect right there, right now. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. As what you ought to be. Not what you are, what you ought to be. And it's a gift. But it's, it's, it's in the Greek tense, you have to know it and receive it. And on a daily basis, it's not just something you'd be aware of. So the picture of Esther, the church, that's you touching the king's scepter of righteousness. The king is a type of God here. That means her appeal is not based on her good works or on her performance, but on the king's righteousness. What caused her to get her request answered, all right, was his righteousness. And whether if she touched it or not. Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and that is not heaven. That is defined in Romans 14, 17 as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everybody thinks the kingdom of God in the New Testament, Jesus wants to preach the king, come give the kingdom. He's not talking about heaven. He's about righteousness, peace, and joy. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not yours, his righteousness, which was perfect, and it's a gift. We just read it's a gift you have to receive. And notice the king simply says, what is your request after she touched that scepter of righteousness and offered her half the empire? Think about how brave this 17-year-old girl was. Kings use scepters to rule. It's not a coincidence that Romans 5, 17 is talking about a scepter of righteousness and ruling as a king. See how connected the Old Testament can be to the New Testament. You know, Jesus, when he came back from the dead, remember he found those disciples, they were all sat on the road to Aramaeus, it was a seven mile walk, and they didn't recognize him because he was in his uh, heavenly body. Do you remember that? They didn't recognize him. And it said, he took them through the Bible and expounded on himself. You know, the New Testament wasn't written then. He just pointed out himself. This applies to me. Joseph is a picture of me. His brothers murdered him. He saved a nation. Joseph, you know, he's taking them through the Bible. Some Christians don't even have a scepter, aren't even aware of the scepter, and they're performing, doing all they can to receive his promises when they simply have to receive the gift. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know what that says? It pleases him to give to you. Pleases him to give to you. <laughs> that means God actually has fun when he gives to you. Do you look at him that way when you pray? If you think God is reluctant to bless you or somehow has to be talked into it, then you're not seeing him correctly. It's gonna affect your prayer life. It's gonna affect the level of faith you're gonna approach him with. Esther 5, 4, and 6. 
Esther said, and we're closing here, it seems good to the king. Let the king, so the king holds it out. Her life is saved. She has favor. She walks in. She's a picture of the church. She has favor. She touches that scepter of righteousness. He says, what do you want? She doesn't rush things. She says, it seems good to the king. Let the king and Haman come this day to a dinner party I've prepared for you. The king said, cause Haman to come quickly. That what Esther has done, say, may be be done. So the king and Haman came to dinner that Esther had prepared. You're going to see here, she didn't go for everything all at once. It's really smart how she did this. She did not appear overly desperate. It was the wisdom of God, probably had something with the Jews assembling together and standing in the gap for her for three days. And I want to take you to John 17, 20 here. Just as, as we're closing. This is a prayer for the church. If you read your King James Bible, it says, Jesus, prayer for the church. It's very, it's very obvious. Neither for these alone do I pray, but also for those who will ever come, ever come, that's you. And he knew what would be happening right now to believe in, trust, cling to, rely on me through their word and teaching. Listen to the way he's praying for the church. No, it's not just living word. You know, there's about, a, there's about one, 1 million to 1.5 million word of faith Christians in the world. How many Christians? 700 million, a billion? You think one million Christians have a corner on the end time harvest and the power of God? Like it's us, it's gonna be us, it's gonna fall on us. We just know it's gonna fall on us. Do you get what I'm saying? It's, it, this, he's saying this is very clear what has to happen here. Father, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Here he goes again, second time. That they may be one. That means unify. Why? When they become one, the world will believe and be convinced that you sent me. See, the world is not convinced right now. But it says when we become one, and I can't wrap my head around that, how the church is going to become one. Only God can do that. But we can pray. What's the next verse? Verse 22. I've given to them glory and honor, which you have given me that they may be one. There it is again, as we are one. Next verse, he talks about glory there. I and them, you and me, in order that they may become one and perfectly united, four and five. Five times he's repeated himself. He says, perfectly united. Why? That, the, that means if we're not perfectly united, what happens next? The world will not know and recognize that you sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. It's only if the church unites. I'm talking about denominations. I'm talking about churches that believe Jesus is their Lord and Savior. The Christian church across the world today. It's the only thing that is going to bring in the transfer of wealth, the power of God, the end time harvest, Listen, look, Father, I desire that they also whom uh, you have entrusted to me 
may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. I think about William Seymour. When we talked about this last week, that he saw us, he saw the glory. You know, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory is real. And in Azusa Street in 1906, I just think this is so interesting. And I think it's a picture of what God is looking for today. William Seymour went to a Bible school in the South. He was, he was a black man that was blind in one eye. And because of segregation, they made him sit outside the classroom. He was not allowed in the classroom. And he took what he learned from that Bible school to Azusa Street in LA and opened services for everyone, Latinos, blacks, whites. And you know what happened? You know what happened? The glory of God came in that place. And for three years, they lived in Acts. And you know what brought that revival down? And that is the birth of churches like this. Are you aware of that? The rebirth. I'm just talking about unification. Just what he said. What did Jesus say? United. United. And all we can do, I, I believe, is pray. I don't. I just can, can we just pray for the church right now, for the, for the leaders of the church, for the people that, that make the decisions, or for God to come down? You know, uh, say this carefully. God removed Eli and put in Samuel. Do you hear me? So, Father, we, just, we take our seat of authority in the heavenly ministries today out of our heavenly ministry, out of our joint seating with Christ. We operate, we pray right now from that, that point. And we just simply pray for the church to unify, just that simple. That you would bring the right people to the forefront. That you would give wisdom to leaders of Assemblies of God and the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church and, and the Church of God and, 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 and the non-denominational Pentecostals and, 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 and churches of all races that, 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 that you would give them wisdom, Lord, that you would show how this happens, that we would see your Shekinah glory, that it would usher in the end-time harvest in the book of Acts. We, we, from our seat of authority in the heavenless, we bind the spirit of division and tradition and the spirit behind racism, the spirit behind the violence. We bind it. We bind it concerning the church not unifying, whatever that is, Lord, the spirit of pride. People thinking they know rebuke it and we resist it and we curse it with the blood of Jesus. And we're, this is, are you with me here? Are you agreeing with me here? I, I believe the unification of the church is the only thing that pulls this country out of this. And so we're going to go ahead and we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ on the authority of his blood.
I loose your angels around every single household in this church, around every single household online, front, back, side to side, top and bottom. I think, you know, plague, pestilence, accident, injury, or danger shall come near their dwelling in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. We're going to go ahead and take communion. So, hallelujah, Lord. We just... Remember now, remember, he was, he was, it didn't just start on the cross. We're discerning his body now. That's what it says. Discern his broken body when you take communion. Remember, don't, don't do it yet. Take, eat, this is my body, which was broken for you. And then he said, as often as you do this, remember me. Okay. So, well, think about this. They blindfolded him first. You can actually find in Psalms, it's prophesied that they ripped out his beard. They ripped out his beard. They blindfolded him. They punched him when he was sitting on a chair saying, prophesy who hit you. Then they put him up in front of a legion of Roman soldiers who beat him, who beat him to a pulp. Then he was scourged to where he could see his bones, nailed to a cross, became every sin you'll ever commit or you've ever committed you know when he said father forgive them they know not what they do you know what you know what he's saying forgive them for the sins they don't even know they're committing he the sins that you don't even know you commit are forgiven it's all forgiven that's part of communion right here that's the that's the cup and then he hung there for six hours. And because of the blood and the water that came out of the side when the Roman soldier put his spear in the side, it says that he died medically of a ruptured heart, a broken heart. We don't even know what he went through in hell. And was raised from the dead three days later. picture that. He took the bread and he broke it for your complete and total healing. He said, take, eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We receive it and we take it. We take healing or we receive it or whatever we got to do. Through the stripes and through the cross, you took on every sickness and disease. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant cut in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. We receive that. See, see, the gift of righteousness is him dying for your sins. So then he pictures you as if you've never sinned, just like he never sinned. God sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the most powerful clause in the New Testament. And so, I want to say one more prayer. I want to end this with a prayer of protection over you. I just, I think we should be doing that when we come to church at this time, don't you think that should be a regular thing? But 
So I just, just agree. This is a prayer of agreement. Online, agree with me. How many people online? 4,000, 5,000? Agree with me. Think about how powerful that is over your families, all right? Over your extended families. Houses, apartments, townhouses, cars, identities, identities, bank accounts, pets, children, children of your children. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, because we dwell in the secret place of the Most High. We abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We will say of you, Lord, you are our refuge and our fortress, our God. And you do we lean on, rely on, and trust. Surely you shall deliver us from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. You shall cover us with your feathers and under your wings shall we trust. Your truth shall be our shield and our buckler. We shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand may fall at our sides and 10,000 at our right hands, but it shall not come near us. Only with our eyes shall we behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because we have made you, Lord, our refuge, even the most high, our habitation. No evil, that means no evil shall befall you. Neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. He shall give his angels charge over you. He shall keep you in all your ways. In your pathway is life and there is no death. His angels are going to bear you up in their hands lest you dash your feet against a stone. And this is demons it's talking about here. You're going to tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the dragon, you're going to trample under your feet. And this is God talking. People, 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 people say it like this, because I have set my love upon him. No, this is God talking, because I have set my love upon you, I will deliver you. He says, I'm going to set you on high just because you know my name. You're going to call on me and I'm going to answer you. I'm going to be with you in trouble. I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to honor you. And with long life, I'm going to satisfy you and show you your salvation. That is God talking. And in this day and time, we are in 2 Chronicles 2015. We are not afraid and we are not dismayed. In the Hebrew, that means discouraged, worried, or beat, confused, discouraged, or beat down. We're not dismayed. Why? So it's not our battle. The battle that God said, it's not your battle. You can't look at it like you're outside of prayer. It's not your battle. He says, it's my battle. Say it, the Lord. So we give that battle to you. We give it all to you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Amen.